Wait, am I the only podcast host without a Fitbit? Apparently. Yeah. Damn. You better get one if you're going to be on a three-on-three team. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Peter's the center. I'm the power forward. We need a shooting guard. Well, after studying only John Fogarty for like all of my waking life over the past week, I'm obviously a huge baseball fan now. So, that's, okay, <laughs> that's not the right sport, but <laughs> do a little three on three baseball. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and uh, you guys remember my last food truck, right? Yeah. Quincy Jones, the food TM. Yes. Home of the Just Crunch Raw Veggie Hard Shell Taco. I eat there three to five times a week on my lunch break. Well, not anymore you don't. Obviously, every bit of Quincy Jones the food was a raging success but uh I decided it was time to shut it down partly for legal reasons but mostly because I just didn't want to stagnate you know yeah no I I see that we don't like to stagnate here on I'd buy that for a dollar Jeremy has a new job every week you Mm -hmm. have a new business every week that's right we keep it fresh and uh I'm gonna need you guys to get ready because my new venture is really gonna put a spell on you I am proud to announce the brand new, official, license-pending, John Fogarty-themed food truck, Cosmo's Snackery. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to be serving up fan favorites like the Bun on the Bayou Gumbo Burger and Willie's Po' Boy. Nice. Plus, the first 100 people in line get a free, fortunate scone. Oh my god. (laughs) You went all in on this title. Yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure this is going to be a huge success, and uh, we look forward to seeing all of you down on the corner and out in the streets. Uh, Bring a nickel and tap your feet. uh, I'm hungry now. Yeah, that was adorable. (laughs) Well, I'm co-host Jeremy, and I decided to release a sequel to my, you guys probably haven't been keeping up on all my musical projects, but I have a pro-communist dubstep band, so the sequel is going to be called The Red Raging Ravers Ride Again. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to that. It's dope. <laughs> well, I am but your simple co-host, Peter Cook, and my heart is a Blue Ridge Mountain. That is all. That's all. All right, cool. I just assumed there was at least another paragraph after <laughs> the bullshit that Jeremy and I were trying to talk about. <laughs> There's more lyrics to that song, but I don't know what they are. <laughs> I just know the first line. Good enough. Sean, you're nervous. I can hear it I'm in a, your voice. I'm a little nervous. This is like the first time I've been kind of nervous to do an episode since like I don't know, about 140 episodes ago when we first started this podcast. Is that because we're talking about your favorite rock band? We are going to talk about my number one favorite rock band, Creedence Clearwater Revival. But more importantly, 
the man behind it all, and his first two solo records, John Fogarty. Yeah, so this is going to be a two-parter, right? We're doing a... Yeah, we're doing some experimentation with this episode. I've wanted to do the Blue Ridge Rangers record, John Fogarty's first self-titled album for a while. And I was at the library a couple of weeks ago and found his autobiography, Fortunate Son. Decided I'd pick it up, do some reading, get some extra info. And the more I got into it, the more I realized there was just no way I was going to do any kind of a comprehensive John Fogarty episode unless I did two full episodes and went real deep. So this is kind of a different format for I'd buy that for a dollar. Oftentimes when we've covered artists of this stature with like this much information about them, we've just kind of had to gloss over and say, you know, if you want to dig deep, go do it on your own. We're just going to talk about this one little aspect of their career. And I wanted to give a shot to actually digging deep on a legendary artist with tons of stories and material to talk about. So this first episode, we're going to be talking about John's early days, plus CCR related content. And then in the second episode, we'll be talking more about his solo career and some of the legal troubles and some of the darker times in his story. So if people enjoy this, let us know and maybe we'll do more stuff in this format in the future. And if you think it's just like too much information and boring, then we'll never do it again. Yeah, we open it up to you, the people, the listener. You can email us at ibuythatpodcast at gmail.com and let us know what you think about this try this different angle and to an episode or a, a series of episodes and you can also or hit us up on our socials just give us some feedback talk to us directly how what you think about this but let's get into what we came to talk about yeah there's a lot you, you want to hear this first song before we start diving in yes all right i'm gonna play the closest thing John had to a hit from either of his first two solo records, which is kind of absurd considering how huge of a band CCR was just a couple short years before this. This is the track Jambalaya. Peter, do you want to give some quick info on it before we play it? Jambalaya on the bio? Yes. As many people may know, this was written by Hank Williams, along with a guy named Moon Mullican. And it was first recorded by Hank Williams in 1952. It is actually, I learned, Hank Williams' most covered song, which, <laughs> you know, that's he's great American songbook. He is the, one of these sources, so that's, that's saying something, that this is his most covered song. You know, everyone from Fats Domino to the Carpenters to the Residents have covered this song. Whoa. And obviously John Fogarty as well. All right, let's get into it. This is side one, track four. Goodbye, Joe. Tonight I'm gonna see my Sammy, oh. Picky top to 
I'm not going to sully your well-researched information here, Sean, with too much of my personal narrative of uh, CCR and John Fogarty, but this song just pulls this right out of me of... So growing up, I grew up on rock radio, and CCR was probably my very favorite of all the bands on rock radio, and... It just drew these images of like the South and New Orleans and this kind of like Southern fried rock sort of thing. And in my teenage years, I found out that they're from Berkeley (laughs) in (laughs) California. And I felt so duped and betrayed. And it was like years before I could enjoy CCR again. I felt like... (laughs) really tricked and that that song being like such a new orleans based vibe just threw those feelings back out of me (laughs) this uh really conjured up some old feelings yeah some old hurts makes sense you know i would say your critique there of you know how can john fogarty sing about the bayou from when he's from northern california i think that's one of the most common things i've heard as a critique about these guys i feel like a lot of people had a very similar story to you where they assumed it was this incredibly authentic southern band but in fact they're from california and i'm happy to inform you we'll be getting into the reasons for why that is throughout these next two episodes all right heal this trauma for me sean it's gonna happen (laughs) You know, my first real memory of CCR and getting into their music is my father and I were driving around in the car. This is like 1994, 1995, long time ago, but the full version of their cover of Suzy Q came on the radio and my father was just like, oh, we're going to drive around a little more because it's like eight minutes long Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they played the full version on the radio and I was just fully into it like just i found it to just be unlike anything i had really heard at that point there's something about it that was magical and mysterious and infectious all at once and that uh left a lasting impression on me really ever since then you know been all in on ccr but i don't know much about john fogarty's solo career other than center field Well, a lot of people don't know much about these first two solo records, which is a big reason why I picked them. Also, I've had a long kind of personal association and love with this record in particular, the Blue Ridge Rangers. This is yet another record that I remember discovering during our infamous record store project, Peter, where we were going through the bins and listening to records that had sat around forever to see if maybe something was good. We could figure out a way how to hype it and sell it to a customer. And this record seemed kind of mysterious. It's got, if you look at the, the original album cover, it's just the, the silhouettes of these five guys wearing cowboy hats on the cover. And, you know, you think it's probably a country record, maybe a country rock record. And then I saw, oh, it's on Fantasy. I know that label from all my CCR records. Turn it over and I was like, oh shit, this is John Fogarty. Actually, all of these guys are John Fogarty. This is a one-man band. And he's playing every instrument and singing every vocal on here. Yeah, the original release does not indicate on the cover that it's John Fogarty, correct? 
Right. He purposely wanted to distance himself from CCR at this point and also kind of prove that he could make it on his own without resting on the massive success of his band. And I believe some re-releases have indicated that it is John Fogarty more clearly. Yeah, there there was a small attempt a few years later to try and sell this record a little better by saying who was actually on it, but it wasn't very successful. And to this day, most people have no idea that this is Fogarty. Even some of the most hardcore CCR fans are completely unaware of this point in his career. The other kind of interesting thing about this record is it's all covers of classic country and some gospel and some standards that John grew up with and were influential to him. And at the point when I bought this record and was listening to it, I had like a passing interest in country at best. I knew I liked some of it, but it just hadn't dove in. And honestly, probably every song on here, I heard John's version before ever hearing the original. So it kind of has like a real special association with me. Yeah, it's kind of like a introductory collection to country music for you. Yeah, which is really like the best way to have a record of all covers be, you know, like you're sharing the music that you love that has had an impact on you and hoping that other people can connect with it. And that's literally what happened. He introduced a new generation of people to country music, or at least me anyways. (laughs) Yeah, it's very well curated too, I would say. The songs Mm -hmm. are great picks. Yeah, Jambalaya's a great selection for his pipes just because yes as we said he has that his songwriting is that great american songbook style like there's a many ccr songs that i knew before i knew ccr as just you know like proud mary i heard it f- through the grapevine those are songs that were just songs i've known since i was a little kid mm-hmm. but, <laughs> yeah so to hearing hearing him sing hank williams is just natural it's it's a yeah thing. Yep, exactly. He's very authentic in his delivery on these songs. Jambalaya specifically, whenever I listen to that, I also think back to a cute little memory I have of going to the store with Jeremy and his roommate Jacob. We were all getting ready to cook a gumbo together, actually, and needed to go to Meyer to find some filet powder. And the whole time we were there, Jacob was kind of half looking and and mostly just like singing lines from the song Jambalaya on repeat because they mention filet gumbo in there. (laughs) And it was like kind of obnoxious, but also cute. And I just, you know, I think of that little memory every time I hear that song now. (laughs) I wish that Jeremy's personal chef and roommate Jacob was here right now so he could sing it in the background, but he is currently MIA as of this taping. Well, we, the, we know, you know where he is. He's not missing, I guess. Yeah, yeah he'll, he'll find he's out fine. eventually. <laughs> the other th- uh, memory I had while researching this is there was a time I was on tour. I believe it was the tour with Jeremy, actually. And I was talking with the drummer in my band, and we were just talking about classic rock bands that we liked. And he was surprised to learn that CCR was by far my favorite classic rock band. I was like, well, they're like everybody's favorite classic rock band. He's like, no, no, people don't like that band the way that you do. And then the next like five people that we ran into, I just like, whether I knew them or not, I was just like, Hey, what are your favorite classic rock bands? And every single person immediately without thinking about it was like, well, CCR, obviously, let me think if anyone's better. Mm, No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You're, I hate to say it, but your drummer was misinformed. I'm going to go ahead and say this unnamed drummer has very uh, 
eccentric taste in music <laughs> or, or eccentric taste in what people perceive and to... <laughs> an eccentric yeah perception of i mean the world at large probably but what wasn't the first lp that you purchased sean green river by ccr the first two vinyl records that i bought with my own money when i was i think 13 years old was ccr's green river and the band self-titled i bought those in east lansing at flat black and circular which was partly why I was pretty excited to have John Howard, the manager of Flat Black and Circular, guest on a few episodes of this podcast early on. Yeah. On Frankie Lane and Donna and Roy Moe, way, 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 way back. Yeah, episodes like way back. Or something. <laughs> I think they were in the 20s, but yeah. What, Hellbent for Leather? Yeah. 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 Yep. <laughs> yep. Worth noting that in John Fogarty's autobiography, he stated that during CCR's heyday, the only band that he felt any kind of jealousy towards was the band. He thought they were the only other group that could really nail this kind of authentic Americana roots rock sound in a way that he was kind of envious of. And he was also mad that they got to cover Long Black Veil before he did. <laughs> Interesting. It's funny that you started with those two albums. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I bought other records and since decided I didn't like them, but I still have those two copies of those records. They've always been with me and are still, like, top five favorites for me. Excellent. Well, now that we've done these lengthy introductions, I'm going to try and cruise through the first part of Bio for the great John Fogarty. You guys ready? I am prepared. Tell me why he's not a fraud. (laughs) So John Fogarty was born... On May 28th, 1945, which makes him exactly one year to the day younger than both Gladys Knight and Rudy Giuliani. He grew up in El Cerrito, California, for those that don't know, that is just north of Oakland. And he was interested in music from a very early age. In fact, he taught himself how to sing harmony while he was in grade school. And by age eight, he was actively trying to imitate and learn the R&B records he was hearing on the radio. At nine years old, his father left the family. His parents' divorce at such a young age had a big impact on him. Him and his four brothers were raised by his mother with increasingly infrequent visits from his father. For John, music was his passion as well as an escape from the difficulties of growing up. This escapism is what informs much of John's writing style. When you listen back, there's a sense of childlike wonder and imagination of what the world could or possibly should look like. In fact, the song Green River is both a reference to his childhood family favorite vacation spot and the label of his favorite childhood soda syrup. As a kid, he would sit at the corner store drinking his soda and staring at the idyllic landscape depicted on the syrup label and think, wow, I'd like to go there someday. John has since said that the song and album Green River are probably his best work. So they're not about the Chicago River that they dye green for St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> it is not. <laughs> We're just going to clear up that misconception right now. <laughs> so skipping forward to high school, John bought a Sony Attitrack tape recorder, which was one of the first ways that someone outside of a recording studio could experiment with overdubbing. John spent hundreds of hours experimenting with overdubbing technique and perfecting his songwriting and instrumental skills and learning how to actually recreate his favorite doo-wop, R&B, and early rock and roll records. Uh, He was particularly inspired at this time by the work of Les Paul and Mary Ford, for obvious reasons. 
that would explain how he's able to do these records where he's playing every instrument because that's mm-hmm. not a skill most people have. And definitely not a skill people are perfecting in like early high school. Yeah. Especially especially not in the 50s. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's more like uh, home taping and overdubbing. Uh, you really don't have a lot of that till probably the 80s, yeah. <laughs> really, for, yeah. for youngsters to experiment with. Fully ahead of the curve on this one. So in eighth grade, John met Doug Clifford and Stu Cook, who would go on to be the rhythm section of Creedence Clearwater Revival. Together, they formed a band called the Blue Velvets and began playing around town at local dances, mostly. John's older brother, Tom, would occasionally sing with them, but was primarily focused on his other bands at the time. John recalls that in the earliest days, they were the only band at their school. Their classmates thought of them as kind of cool, but mostly kind of weird. And then once the Beatles hit, suddenly there it seemed like there was 100 bands in every high school across the country. In 1961, the boys made their recorded debut, backing up a small-time doo-wop singer named James Powell and his only recorded single, Beverly Angel. John would have been about 15 when this was recorded. Wow. Yeah, you you showed us that recording, and it sounds pretty dang pro. Yeah, for a bunch of, like, complete amateur kids recording in... Like he described the recording studio they were working in, and it was like barely a functioning studio at all. It, the The record is amazingly, sorry, the, the record sounds great considering the circumstances and the age of the people involved. So skipping ahead to 1964, the Blue Velvet signed to Fantasy Records in the springtime. They recorded a few songs that were not released until November of 1964, And by this point, Tom was now a full-time member of the band and also generally the lead singer. During the months while they were waiting for their record to come out, Max Weiss, the owner of Fantasy Records, asked the band to change their name. They spent months trying to figure it out and settled on The Visions. When the boys arrived at the label office to finally pick up their first single, they opened a box to discover Max also didn't like that name and had decided to change them to The Gollywogs instead. Oh, Oh, boy. (laughs) I mean, I don't like the visions, but Gollywogs is worse. That's a, yeah, well, that's a strange place to arrive. <laughs> so th- this was a blatant attempt on Max's part to make them sound more British and hopefully capitalize on the recent success of British Invasion acts. Needless to say, the band was very disappointed and shocked by this. They did not like the name, and it felt like every time they played a show, they had to explain to people why... They had that band name, even though they didn't like it or want to have it. Also, I found out that unbeknownst to the band or label, Gollywog was actually a very racist term from the UK and not something they should have been using. <laughs> yeah. Um, the fantasy staff at this point really had just no idea how to market or record a rock band. At the time, they were primarily known as a small jazz label that had formed in 1949. They'd had some minor success with releases by Dave Brubeck, Vince Guaraldi, Odetta, and Lenny Bruce, but had no real hits to speak of. Most of Max's production advice for the Gollywogs was basically just to sound more like the Beatles. He even went so far at one point as to ask them to sing in a British accent. That's strange considering that the Beatles sounded American. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, that gives me a little more respect right out of the gate for John. 
Because people were trying to make him into a thing that's inauthentic, and he clearly resisted it to some degree. Yeah, John has never been one to compromise, especially when he had a clear vision of what he wanted. And he wanted to be on the bayou. Yeah. (laughs) So John knew that the label they were signed to was mostly incompetent and had decided that he needed to teach himself how to become a producer if the Gollywogs were to have any chance of making a decent record. This DIY attitude would be prevalent throughout the rest of his career. There's a quote from him around this time, basically just coming to the conclusion that no one else is going to do it, so I guess it's on me. Dang. John was married to his first wife, Martha, in 1965 at the age of 20. Shortly after that, he was drafted. Luckily, he was able to convince a recruiter to backdate his application to the Army Reserves, which allowed him to avoid ever seeing combat. Yeah, it ain't him. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) John was sent on active training duty for six months and then held in the reserves for several years after. Once he returned from the initial six-month training, Tom, Doug, Stu, and John decided to give the band one final push and began practicing daily. I would imagine that John's newly acquired discipline from training probably influenced this as well. Part of what got John through the intensity of boot camp was disassociating and working on new songwriting ideas in his head while doing forced marches all day long. John's years in the reserve were very stressful, as he was living under the constant threat of deployment to Vietnam. He eventually decided to take extreme measures in the hope of being discharged. He began starving himself, eventually getting down to only 129 pounds and contracting a mild case of dysentery. This eventually led to his honorable discharge in 1968, just as Creedence Clearwater Revival was hitting the charts with their first album and their first hit, Suzy Q. Whoa. Wow, that was their first. Yeah. That was their first hit. That was the first time most people heard Credence back in the day. That's got to be one of their only songs not written by John Fogarty. Like, that's a hit, I mean. Yeah, they had a couple other hits. I mean, like, the follow-up single to that was I Put a Spell on You, which wasn't as big of a hit as Suzy Q, but they would have, like, a couple covers on most of their albums. Mm -hmm. Well, you guys want to go back to some Blue Ridge Rangers, hear another country tune? Yeah. Yeah. All right, we're going to... We're going to skip back to side one, track two, and hear the song Somewhere Listening for My Name. Yeah, this one was written by Archie Brownlee, who was a member of the original five blind boys of Mississippi. Their name seems to vary as to which words from what I just said are included (laughs) as it it, it changes throughout their career. But apparently uh, John Fogarty discovered this song on a collection of spirituals that he found while touring in Europe and was like, this song is too good to be this obscure deep cut. People need to hear this song. Mm -hmm. And I would encourage people to go back and listen to the original version of this song, because when you hear these old school gospel quartet chops, you suddenly understand just how much of a gospel influence there is in John's vocal style. So here we are somewhere listening to my name. Side one, track two, Blue Ridge Rangers. Oh, any
researching this episode, I spent a lot of time thinking about just what makes John Fogarty's music so special, CCR and otherwise. And I think listening to this Blue Ridge Rangers album kind of unlocks a piece of that answer. If you listen to these tracks, he's treating them with so much seriousness and respect for the original material. This is not a half-assed thing. Like You can tell that he's passionate about this music, that it's more than just simple songs to him. It's it's something that's meaningful and he wants to convey that to the audience. Yeah, and it's, you know, I, I checked this out in advance, but the first time I listened, I didn't realize that that was all him. He sounds like a gospel choir. Yeah. <laughs> you know, for the longest time, I, I knew that like he did all the instruments and stuff, but I just kind of assumed, well, that probably means he got like backing vocalists and you know, a horn section at the very least to come in. That's not true. <laughs> He's singing all of his own backup vocals and any instrument that he wanted to have on this record that he didn't know how to play. He just taught himself how to play it. <laughs> yeah. Not a fraud. No. And he talks about like not being a good horn player and just learning like all these instruments good enough to be able to fake it. But still, he still did it. <laughs> he still did it effectively. There's plenty of examples of people half-assing horns and vocals and stuff, and that is not the case on this album. Yeah. No, that, and that's, uh, yeah, like you said, it's a truly tasteful and respectful rendition of that song. Mm-hmm. If anything, it, it feels like, it, it, like you said, there's the original recording, which is pretty sparse, and it's excellent, but it feels like he kind of filled it in a bit more. Almost like taking this old material and giving it a sort of timeless quality to it. Yeah. So we talked before about how CCR is one of the most universally loved American bands. Yet when you think about their sound in comparison to other bands from the time, it doesn't completely fit in. You know, there was other groups highly influenced by early American soul and blues, but a lot of those were UK bands. I mean, like the Rolling Stones come to mind as a, a comparison to CCR. But if you look at the other Bay Area bands that were coming out around the time of CCR, especially like the Jefferson Airplane or the Grateful Dead, CCR completely stands out. Yeah, even, you know, in groups like Blue Cheer from that time period that were blues oriented, they were doing kind of more that Hendrix direction of going to these extremes in sound. Mm-hmm and electrified john has stated that he actually disliked most psychedelic or flower powered music from the time and he thought that it wasn't very authentic and most of these people were just not doing a good job in fact part of his inspiration for doing an all-country album is he particularly thought that most country rock bands were just butchering the material and he wanted to make sure that he actually did these songs justice yeah that was an interesting zag to me and this would have been like I think the Eagles would have been starting to take off and there was a lot of artists kind of venturing into more country material like rock bands but he like or they're trying to make like a modern fusion of country and rock he's just like going back to these classics and really laying into them I thought that was a cool zag definitely the other thing I thought about is that a lot of John's songs have this kind of mixture of nostalgia and critical thinking from the common man's perspective, which, of course, reminds me of Bruce Springsteen, who 
was a big fan of John Fogarty's and was the one to give the speech during the, the band's induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. During that speech, he said, referring to CCR, they weren't the hippest band in the world, just the best. It's a good way of uh, looking at them. Mm-hmm. You know, diving into more of John's influence or his influences and where he's coming from musically to create these songs. He stated that he never really cared too much growing up for genre distinctions. He was more just interested if the song was good or not, if it spoke to him. He was an obsessive record collector from a young age and bought all kinds of early rock and roll, doo-wop, country, folk, blues, gospel, and soul. In fact, he grew up witnessing the formation of rock and roll in front of him. So to him, this was a very personal thing. Yeah, I got the impression that he approached it with that musicologist perspective. Mm -hmm. Kind of like the guys in Canned Heat did to a degree, but... Sure, yeah. And, you know, he grew up in Northern California, but he still grew up in a small town in Northern California. He still had kind of an authentic... 50s small town american view and you know a lot of these songs are about like i said imagining what things could be like but also at the same time remaining critical you know this this isn't just like sappy nostalgia and oh i wish everything was great like back in the old days it's you know taking the good and not being afraid to call out the bad wow Uh, a list of some of john's early influences includes stephen foster irving berlin howlin wolf the staple singers the swan silvertones Elvis Presley, James Brown, Jackie Wilson, and Pete Seeger. That all tracks. Yeah. Perhaps his most important influence, though, was a little group called Booker T and the MGs. John actually considers them to be the greatest rock and roll band of all time, stating that they may have not been the best musicians in the game, but they had the most feeling. And I think that concept plays right to the heart of what makes John's music so great as well. Yeah, I didn't, until you just said that just now, I had not seen the line from like that stack sound into CCR, but that's a huge influence now that I'm thinking about it. (laughs) Yeah, it just completely makes sense. In fact, every member of CCR revered Booker T and the MGs. Yeah. John also considers Little Richard to be the greatest rock singer of all time. And I just kept thinking, imagine what it would sound like if Booker T and the MGs backed up Little Richard and you kind of just end up with CCR. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But just if you put on a Booker T record and a Little Richard record simultaneously, you will just hear a CCR record. <laughs> <laughs> John also talked about how. You know, he always revered Chet Atkins and wished he could play as good as him. And this was like this guitar god that so many people looked up to. But at the end of the day, any guitar player worth his salt would rather be Steve Cropper than Chet Atkins. And I can I can hear that Booker T influence on some of the CCR tracks, like the aforementioned Suzy Q, where they stretch out into long instrumental sections, too. Absolutely. All right, let's dive back into the bio. We're in <laughs> the, October. The bio. The, bi- <laughs> the, <laughs> the bayou. Pun intended. The bio. <laughs> oh, my God. So we're going back to October of 1967. The guy who was at the time the sales manager for Fantasy Records, Saul Zantz, pooled some money, got some investors, and bought out Fantasy Records from the Weiss brothers. When he did this, he had to re-sign contracts with some of the active groups as the new label president and offered to re-sign 
the band, who at this point were still the Blue Velvets. The group agreed to re-sign on the condition that they could choose their own band name. Or actually, sorry, no, they were the Gollywogs at that point. <laughs> the Blue Velvets and then the Gollywogs. <laughs> they wanted to change that name, obviously, and uh, Saul Zantz agreed. So they spent the next three months trying to come up with the perfect name. At one point, they wanted to name themselves after Credence Newball, who was the doorman at a friend's apartment building. Other names were floated like Gossamer Wump. Hardwood and Whiskey Rebellion, which then later changed to Whiskey Revival. Eventually, it all came together one night when John saw a commercial on TV for a clean water initiative, and the words just kind of fell together, and Credence Clear Water Revival was the unanimous pick for their new band name. <laughs> I remember initially not grasping the revival part of their name i thought it was just credence clearwater and then i thought revival was like when they got back together after a breakup or something <laughs> so it's an interesting name but it it, it it works and then it abbreviates greatly ccr it's kind of the perfect name in so many ways uh john talked about one of the reasons why the band all loved that name is they thought it just had a uniquely American feel to it, and that it kind of instantly painted a picture and gave emotional context to the songs. It's like you almost kind of know what you're getting into just by hearing that name somehow. And when you think about it, that fits in exactly with John's writing style lyrically. So many of their songs are about creating the most significant image with the fewest words. It's all about the emotional resonance. Very nice. So at this point, the band was actually very excited to be working for the new fantasy president, Saul Zant. At the time, the band thought of him as one of the more hip executives at fantasy. And as we said, fantasy was kind of a incompetent label. So they thought maybe with this new guy on board, they'd finally be able to promote a rock band and get them some success. They hoped he would, you know, breathe new life into the label. Saul at the time led the band to believe that they were all quote part of the family and promised them that the new contract he had given them was only temporary and that, you know, if they ever became successful, he would immediately tear up the contract and write a better one for them. Sounds like a fantasy too good to be true. Yeah. <laughs> Despite their excitement, John knew that fantasy was too small and too cheap of a label to still promote them effectively. And seeing as how John also had no idea how to promote music or distribute or anything like that, his only option was to fall back on, I guess I'm just going to have to do it with music. His idea was that if he wrote songs that were good enough, it would transcend all of the shortcomings of the label and their situation and that these songs would just shine through and make them successful anyways. Which seems like the most wildly delusional thinking, except he actually pulled that off. Yeah, I feel like that's the delusional thinking of most DIY musicians. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all the advertising stuff is horrible. And they're like, if I just write a good enough song, people will just love it no matter what. But he actually <laughs> did it. Yeah. His first big songwriting project after making this grandiose setting this like lofty goal for himself was the song Susie Q that we mentioned, which is a cover of the Dale Hawkins classic. And that song was an instant hit went all the way up to number 11 on the billboard hot 100 and the follow-up single, I put a spell on you made a small splash as well with this 
early success with the band, John was feeling a lot of pressure to follow it up with their second album, and he began experiencing a strong case of writer's block for the first time in his life. This ended the day that he received his official honorable discharge notice from the army. In a wave of euphoria, he sat down and immediately wrote the song Proud Mary. When he was finished, he felt that he had actually finally transcended as a songwriter. He thought of Proud Mary as a kind of standard or a classic in the Tin Pan Alley tradition and was convinced that it would be a hit. It's one for the ages. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Again, it's like, how does someone in his position at his age write a song and then think, well, I've transcended to the upper echelon of the music industry, but then be right about (laughs) it? (laughs) Yeah. It's not cocky. It's just uh, like self-aware and perceptive. You know, the theme I kind of kept coming back to this whole time is like, John is rarely wrong. I don't think he often (laughs) like presents things in a way that are like easy for other people to understand or easy to take on. And, you know, he often seems like he's being an asshole or being full of himself, but he's never wrong. That's the thing. And that's why Center Field is the greatest song of the 80s. (laughs) (laughs) That's really what we wanted to say here. You know, going into this research, I kind of hated the album Centerfield, and I kind of like it now. It's really grown on me. I don't know if it's just like a form of Stockholm Syndrome or what, but I got to say that album slaps. (laughs) I don't think I've ever heard the whole album. I just know the song. There's some jams on it. You know, not every track is great, but there's some definite jams. Once you get past the the weird 80s production mixed with John's style, it's, it's still John Fogarty there kicking out these classic songs. I remember Centerfield playing the opening day of Little League, the first year that I officially joined on to Little League, and I was like, I've made it, I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) John was always a massive baseball fan, so the fact that actual baseball league picked up on that song and it's played at all kinds of sporting events has been like a huge point of pride for him. Oh yeah, I imagine. (laughs) Write an anthem. Guy's good at writing anthems. Mm -hmm. Well, you guys want to hear another Blue Ridge Rangers track? If it's an anthem. You know, it kind of is. This is usually one of my favorite country songs ever. And again, there's a much more famous versions of it, but this is the first one I ever heard of the legendary song, She Thinks I Still Care. Written by Dickie Lee. His full name is Royden Dickie Lipscomb along with a guy named Steve Duffy. This was first a hit for George Jones in 1962. It's been recorded by a lot of people as well. Yeah, (laughs) hundreds of people. (laughs) Little Willie John, Elvis Presley, Connie Francis, Del Shannon, Cher, Patti Loveless, Merle Haggard, Michael Nesmith, Leon Russell, and Ann Murray, to name just a few. Mm -hmm. Supposedly, John actually learned this song by listening to a Merle Haggard record. I don't know if he heard the George Jones version first or just like happened to miss that one. I don't know. It seems like being a country fan at that point, it would have been unavoidable to miss the George Jones original, but yeah. yeah. (laughs) But regardless, he apparently really connected with the Merle Haggard version of it, which makes sense. Merle was another great one. All right. So this is... Just look in the grooves. Ah, we're, we're on side one, 
Track five. She thinks I still care. trying to recall how I first became aware of that song. I was thinking maybe the Flying Burrito Brothers, but I think their version was a later post-Graham Parsons rendition of the song. Regardless, this has to be one of my favorite versions that I've heard of it. I've heard many. (laughs) And it's just, once again, I don't know, John Fogarty just has... He's, as Jeremy said, like, so this is a well curated selection of songs for his voice, for his style. But really, I don't know, can he sing a song badly? (laughs) Like, is that possible? (laughs) I'm going to say yes. There, there's some stinkers in his catalog, but you know, there's also reasons for why some of his songs didn't quite land. But Overall, I mean, he's he's a major talent. His singing especially is so good. And going back to him doing all his own background vocals, I was playing this record for a friend the other day, and he pointed out that like John doesn't have the voice that you would typically think of as working well with like background singers and harmonizing. He kind of has that like lead singer voice that you just get out of the way of, and yet he harmonizes with himself so beautifully. It almost doesn't even make sense yeah it sounds like a like he's singing in a whole different manner or something i mean it doesn't sound like him but like his whole approach and technique feel like i mean like a different instrument essentially Mm-hmm. and again how many people already had hundreds of hours of practice of recording their own backup vocals <laughs> less paul and mary ford Yep, that's about it. It's a short list. (laughs) Well, 
I've got a little bit more info and I also just want to kind of throw some stats at people, especially anyone who may still doubt that CCR is the greatest classic rock band ever. Do you guys know that in 1969 and 1970, CCR outsold the Beatles worldwide? In 69 and 70? Yes. Incredible. I mean, that's the final years of the Beatles. They're in kind of at their breakup point, but regardless, that's, yeah, you know, that's Abbey Road. That's, yeah, that's their complete catalog stacked up each other against each other for like complete worldwide sales. You know, there's some countries where the Beatles probably outsold them, but not only is CCR a beloved American band, they had worldwide appeal. Everyone just latched onto this group. Oh yeah. I can, I can see this really appealing to people in other countries. Like, Oh, that's that authentic American sound. (laughs) Yeah. That's what Americans should sound like. (laughs) CCR had nine top 10 singles without ever going to number one. That is, they are the record holder for that. In fact, five of their singles made it to number two. They're technically never had a number one hit, which is also just wild to think about. Yeah. Wow. Never had a number one. We mentioned the song Proud Mary being this breakthrough moment for him as a songwriter. The other thing that's interesting about that song, the side B on that is the track Born on the Bayou. John purposely wanted to release double A side 45, despite many objections from the label and just common knowledge of how the music industry is supposed to work. His excuse for this was, if Elvis and the Beatles can do it, then so can I. (laughs) Once again, he was not wrong. Yeah, and here, listen to this list of all of their double A side 45s. Down on the Corner, backed with Fortunate Son in 1969. (laughs) Holy crap. (laughs) Green River, backed with Commotion. Bad Moon Rising, backed with Lodi. Traveling Band, backed with Who'll Stop the Rain. (laughs) Looking Out My Back Door, backed with Long As I Can See the Light, Up Around the Bend, backed with Run Through the Jungle as the B-side, and Hey Tonight, backed with Have You Ever Seen the Rain in 1971. Here's the other thing. (laughs) All of these songs were released in the span of three years. Jeez. CCR was only a band from 1968 to 1972, yet they released seven albums, And that's without releasing a single LP in the year 1971. Bayou Country, Green River, and Willie and the Poor Boys all came out in 1969 alone. (laughs) That's just... What you were saying about those those double A sides here, I thought all these times I've seen these CCR singles, I thought they were just like retroactive, like, here's two of their big hits together. (laughs) (laughs) But they're probably originals that I was seeing. (laughs) No, that was John just being like stubborn and uncompromising and like kind of boastful, but again, not wrong. (laughs) Aside from a few exceptions, every single song in CCI was written, arranged, and produced by one man, John Fogarty. Not only that, he sang nearly all of the backup vocals in CCR and taught himself to play all of the auxiliary instruments heard in CCR's music. That includes multiple horns, harmonica, various keyboards. He would often also edit, re-record, and fix his own bandmates' parts. Oh, wow. Getting into some Billy Corgan Smashing Pumpkins (laughs) territory there. Oh, that's an interesting parallel. They kind of have similar... Mm -hmm. 
uh, <laughs> yeah, attitudes or whatever. Yeah, I would just say Billy Corgan's been wrong a lot more than John Fogarty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone can agree on that. When CCR broke up in 1972, it kind of feels like the most natural thing for John was to become a one-man band covering songs that he'd loved his whole life which is what we get with this first solo record, the Blue Ridge Rangers. And, you know, you would be hard pressed to say that this album is as good as the best CCR, but at the same time, it doesn't need to be. There's so much beauty in the reverence that John has for these songs. And this album is still just so enjoyable and worthy of many repeated listens. I would argue that John supposedly phoning it in is still better than most people's entire careers. Yeah. Now that you've illustrated the fact that, he wrote and released so many legendary classic songs in such a short period of time. I can understand why he would have had writer's block by the time (laughs) this album rolls around. He had had straight up exhausted himself with the amount of work that he had taken on. Yeah. Yeah. As I mentioned, the only band that John was jealous of back in the day was the band. Also at his rock and roll hall of fame induction, Robbie Robertson was one of the guys playing with him. And, but also John has stated that he feels like his one man band material from this point in his career pales in comparison to the work of Prince or Stevie wonder. And he just wishes he was as talented as those guys. Two of the other most like important American musicians (laughs) of the last 50 years. (laughs) (laughs) I have a couple other like cool little side notes here. John, as I'm sure you're aware, is kind of infamous for having misheard lyrics. He has a funny way of pronouncing (laughs) things, and when he's really belting it out, it can be nearly impossible to understand exactly what he's saying at times. Yeah, there's a A bathroom on the right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) A really good example of this I found was that at the time there was a Bay Area music writer who once misquoted lyrics from Down on the Corner as the devil's on the loose instead of the correct and doubles on kazoo. John read this article and thought the misquote sounded so cool that he actually wrote that line into the song Run Through the Jungle. (laughs) He's influenced by uh, people misunderstanding him. (laughs) Yeah, you take influence wherever you can get it, I guess. One thing I wanted to point out for especially the, the Kalamazoo locals, the song Down on the Corner has the line, poor boy twangs the rhythm out on his Kalamazoo do either of you know why that line is there? Of course, we both that know. <laughs> yeah, that, that's uh, the guitar. Well, let me rephrase it. You both obviously know the answer. <laughs> do either of you want to explain this to people who might not be familiar? Do it, Peter. You're the historian. <laughs> so Gibson guitars were manufactured in Kalamazoo for many, many, many years. And uh, they, unfortunately, in the early 1980s, throughout the 70s into the 1980s, production moved to Tennessee. But And a bunch of my family moved with them because they all worked at Gibson. <laughs> but there's the, the Kalamazoo. Is, isn't, that's a line of, their, of the Gibson guitars, right? The, the... Yeah, that was like their budget line yeah. at one point. So it goes with the imagery of this, you know, supposedly small town or small time band, this fake band from Willie and the poor boys playing on the corner with their low quality instruments. So the Kalamazoo would have been like the, the budget entry level, like the, you know, the Squire to Fender or the Epiphone to Gibson that people know now. Yeah. It's a little Kalamazoo history for you in this episode. Way to go, Sean. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) 
no problem. <laughs> you know, we talked about John's influence as being so important to him and him treating these covers with such reverence. One other thing that I thought was cool is that when CCR was big, he made a point of often having some of these influences as the opening act. Uh, a short list of people that opened for CCR on tour includes Ike and Tina Turner, Bo Diddley, Wilbert Harrison, Booker T and the MGs, and Tony Joe White. Ooh, Poke Salad Annie. Mm-hmm. Those would be sick concerts. Oh my God, right? <laughs> Any of those would have been sick. Yeah. My final note before we play this last track and get out of here. One thing that I thought was really interesting is that John said the songwriting and overall sound of a record were much more important to him than the riff, which he considered to be simply icing on the cake. And I think that's a fundamental difference between his writing approach and many, many other rock bands where it's like you get a good riff and then you build a song around that and you kind of end up with maybe a cool song that lacks a certain amount of substance. To John, it had to be like an incredibly well-written, fleshed-out song, and if you could hook with a riff at the end, then cool, but that wasn't the point. Yeah, I'd say he nailed it. Uh, Long As I Can See the Light is probably a top 10 all-time song for me. Anytime, Mm -hmm. any artist, that song slays me every time. Well, you guys want to go out on a country track here? Let's go out on a country track here. All right, we're going to hear the song, I Ain't Never. And this one was written by Webb Pierce and Mel Tillis. But according to Mel Tillis, who is a... Both of these guys are legendary country musicians, both Webb Pierce and Mel Tillis. Uh, Mel Tillis just passed away about five years ago. And he said that he wrote this song himself, but agreed to give credit to Webb Pierce as a co-writer in exchange for a pair of boots Pierce was wearing when Tillis pitched him the song. And, wow. And Tillis said, this is his words, them old boots cost me over $800,000 in royalties. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and both of them, both Pierce and Tillis recorded hit versions of I Ain't Never. Pierce's version was released in 1959 and Tillis in 1972, just a year before this album and this version by John Fogarty of I Ain't Never. So we're going to go out on that. What? Are, so this has been part one of our John Fogarty series. Sean, yes. uh, we're, we're come back listeners for part two next week where we, we will be talking about what album, Sean? We are going to be talking about John Fogarty's self-titled album. It's his second solo record and the direct follow-up to this one, The Blue Ridge Rangers. It did even worse than this record as far as charts, and I think is maybe even a better record. So stick around for that. We're also going to get into some of the darker side of John Fogarty's story, the legal problems, band infighting within CCR, and the the darker points of his solo career. So it's going to be interesting. I promise it still has a happy ending and lots of cool information. So come back next week as we conclude our two-part story on the legend of John Fogarty. Fantastic. I'm co-host Jeremy. I'll see you next week. I am co-host Peter, and this has been I'd Buy That for a Dollar. I am co-host Sean, and I agree with everything Jeremy and Peter just said. Let's hear the song I Ain't Never, side two, track four.
somebody like you know.